So, let's go to Narnia. Um, we're in two of my favorite chapters. We're in chapters 7 and 8. You're going to get to meet, or you've already met, if you've kept up with your reading, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. Um, I, I, I'm very, very grateful for Mr. and Mrs. Beaver because Mr. and Mrs. Beaver introduces Aslan to the story. And um, this is one of those places where we know that you should always, contrary to how they've been renumbered in recent years, you should always read this chronicle first. Uh, and I'll point that out to you in a moment. But uh, it comes from how they introduce Aslan to us. So uh, you, you, will, you will learn to love Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. Um, again, when C.S. Lewis wrote this first chronicle, uh, he had no um, assumption he'd write others. So this is the only place where he takes two of the talking animals and just refers to them as Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. In all the other chronicles, he starts giving all of the individual animals' names. Like one of my favorite characters in later chronicles is Reepicheep, the, the mouse. Um, you know, he's Reepicheep, he's not Mr. Mouse. But when C.S. Lewis wrote this chronicle, he did not assume there'd be other beavers. So um, it's just Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. Uh, and there are no other beavers. I guess he figured that out as he kept writing chronicles. There are no other beavers anywhere else in the chronicles of, of Narnia. Um, and it may be because these two beavers are so significant. It may be uh, because he did realize he just gave them a generic title, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and didn't give them individual names, so it'd be hard to distinguish them from future beavers. Uh, but that's also why um, uh, you learn later that um, there are no other beavers. He, I think he realized what he had done. There are no other beavers in the Chronicles of Narnia because the white witch um, kills all of them. She stamps them out. Uh, and eventually, this home place for these Mr. and Miss Beavers, eventually in the Chronicles, become a, a city um, called Beaver's Dam. Uh, so uh, these are the only two beavers uh, that you meet in the uh, Chronicles of Narnia. And, um, of course, um, when you meet and hear Mr. Beaver, this is the first talking animal now, of course, uh, Mr. Tumnus was half animal and half human. He spoke. But this is the first pure animal that speaks uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, you may or may not know, when C.S. Lewis was growing up as a young child in Belfast, uh, Ireland, it was just Ireland at that point. It's Northern Ireland now. But when he grew up in Belfast, Ireland, he and his brother Warney, as they would play together, they, they created a whole made-up, pretend world called Boxen, which was a world of talking animals. So this does harken back to C.S. Lewis's childhood as he creates Narnia with these speaking animals. So let's, let's run through these two chapters, and then we'll make our way to something in the Bible. Uh, chapter 7. Again, I've mentioned to you how oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, uh, C.S. Lewis will start introducing the next chapter by the previous chapter. Remember the previous chapter? Uh, the kids, they're all in Narnia now. The kids are following this, this red robin, which is probably the harbinger of spring, uh, because um, you, part of what's going on in this chronicle is um, the white witch is going to be defeated and, and winter will go away. Uh, but this red robin uh, begins leading them further into Narnia. And then um, they're, they're walking through the woods, of course, snowy wood, wood, as they say in England. They're walking through the snowy wood uh, following this uh, robin. And then all of a sudden the robin is gone. And, of course, when the robin, robin is gone, that's when Edmund, and we remember Edmund, not our favorite character at this point, that's when Edmund uh, takes the opportunity uh, to tell Peter, say, I told you you shouldn't have followed this robin. And um, so the robin goes away. But soon after the robin goes away, uh, they start noticing um, some other noise in the wood. And that's when they notice this beaver. Uh, and this will be Mr. Beaver. If you look at the bottom, and I think most of your editions are like mine, but 
pretty rapidly into this chapter. If you look at the bottom of page 65, you see the first words that the first talking animal says to you in, in the first chronicle that should be read, and it is further in, come further in. Uh, that's, a, that's a famous phrase uh, in the world of Narnia. Um, when you get to the last battle, one of the last chronicles, uh, one of the phrases that becomes really important is uh, further up and further in. And there's actually been books written about the, the work of C.S. Lewis uh, using these as titles. Because part of what C.S. Lewis is trying to do is to help you move further up and further in or father up and father in. He wants you to go deeper into the world, um, into the new world. He wants you to go deeper into the new world um, where, um, the new world of Aslan. He wants you to go deeper into the new world. So the first thing the, the beaver says, Mr. Beaver, is a further in, come further in. So they, you know, they've determined it. he's a nice beaver. So they start following the beaver. And then you notice on page 50, on page 66 in my edition, right under one of the pictures, one of the sketchings by Pauline Baines of the beaver, um, you see what the beaver says. Are you, and the word the there is important, are you the sons of Adam and daughters of Eve? And of course, that's why Peter says, well, we're, we're some of them. But the beaver really means, are you the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve? The four that they're looking for. The four that have to do with the prophecy that when the uh, two sons of daughter and two um, uh, two sons of Adam, two daughters of Eve occur in Narnia, uh, come to Narnia, they will eventually sit on the thrones of Ker Paravel, uh, that were f- from where Narnia should be ruled. Um, it's a castle, um, based on a castle, by the way, in Northern Ireland. It is a castle. And um, that's one of the prophecies. You're going to learn in, here in the episodes with the beavers, you're going to learn of three prophecies. You've already learned of the prophecy that when these four humans come into, uh, come into Aslan's world or to Narnia, uh, they'll sit on the throne and the white witch will be defeated. So that's, that's who the beaver's thinking about when he says, are you the sons of Adam and daughters of Eve? Um, and then, of course, when Peter speaks, he gets shushed by the beaver because again this is not a completely safe world i assume you know that your world is not a completely safe world i hope you're not living uh under the delusion that this is a safe world in which we're living um it's not a safe world so the beaver shushes peter um and then um you know peter says why who are you afraid of there's no one here but ourselves and again you're 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 told that some of the trees are on the wrong side some of the trees are serving the white witch and they're always listening so anyway they start following uh they're going to start following uh the beaver here there's a section in this chapter and then there's going to be a another section in the next chapter where you're introduced to Aslan. So um, on the page, on page 67 of my edition, toward the bottom of the page where it starts, they say Aslan is on the move. Um, we're going to look at this section. Um, Aslan, uh, you're going to learn soon that Aslan is a lion. Uh, people frequently, particularly children, wrote C.S. Lewis and said, why a lion? Why named Aslan. Um, so we learned some we learned a lot of interesting things from he 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 always answered the letters that were written to him, Jack Lewis. He always answered the letter. There was one American lady who he responded to one hundred times. And of course we have all those letters. So we that's why we know a lot about him and his writings. Um, he he talks about how, you know, I told you a while back that when he was sixteen years old, that's when he had that image of the fawn in the woods, in a snowy wood, carrying parcels and an umbrella. That was an early image that he received. Uh, As he was working on the Chronicle, um, he says this line, this image of a line just came bounding in. And then it was this image of the line and the character of Aslan who tied together all the Chronicles. And uh, he is your big hero. He's your Christ figure, if you hadn't figured that out. And... um, in, in the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, uh, the word Aslan is Turkish. 
for line. Uh, C.S. Lewis even wrote in one of his letters, he said, as like with an S, Aslan, we on this side of the pond usually have said Aslan, kind of with a Z, so you can call it whatever you want to call it, whether you're leaning toward England or leaning toward the United States. Um, why a line? Besides, it just was an image that came to his mind. Well, of course, we Christians, and we'll look at the text later, we Christians are quick to uh, draw the connection that one of the titles for Jesus in the Bible is the line of the tribe of Judah. And we're going to look at that, uh, where that comes from. Um, that might have been in C.S. Lewis's mind. I have a photograph in, in my den that I took while I was, uh, where I, I, I take groups occasionally to visit and learn, visit places and learn things. And I have taken three groups to um, Ireland and England to study C.S. Lewis. Um, you can do most of your study of C.S. Lewis in, in England, but he was born in Belfast, modern Northern Ireland, modern day Northern Ireland. And you can go to Belfast and you can uh, visit where he was born. You can visit his old haunts. You can visit um, the church he grew up in. You can visit, go by the office where his father was a solicitor or an attorney in Belfast. Uh, you may remember, you may not know, C.S. Lewis's uh, paternal grandfather was um, a Church of Ireland clergyman, which means he was Anglican, Church of England in Ireland. Uh, and that was the church in which uh, C.S. Lewis was raised. It, um, it was a church in Dundella, which is a suburb of Belfast. It's still there. You can go visit it. You can see the baptismal font in which C.S. Lewis was baptized as an infant. Um, and you see the parsonage or rectory or manse beside uh, the church. The church is named St. Mark's, St. Mark's Dundella. Uh, you may or may not know, uh, if you go in our chapel upstairs, I can use a visual, you may realize that you have the four symbols of the Gospels in our chapel upstairs. If not, pay attention next time you're in there. Uh, the symbol for Mark has always, or 1,800 years, has been the lion. So um, if you go to um, the man's, the parsonage, the rectory, where the pastor lived, where C.S. Lewis's grandfather lived when he was pastor at St. Mark's Dundell. If you go to the door of the parsonage, this is where my photograph comes from in, in my den. If you go to the door of the parsonage, there's a door hanger where you can knock, and the door hanger is pretty large, and guess what it is the image of? A lion. So it may even just go back to C.S. Lewis's childhood and uh, the hours that he spent with his grandfather visiting his grandfather and grandmother there in the parsonage of St. Mark's Dundella, uh, because the line is the image for St. Mark, uh, the gospel writer. Oh, so there may be several reasons why he uses a line. But of, but of course, just like the New Testament, the line of the tribe of Judah, you wanted to pick Jesus as powerful, mighty, ruler, king, king of the beast. You know, you don't want to pick Jesus as a a frog. I mean, that just doesn't work. Um, I mean, there's, you know, you, you want to pick him as a mighty, mighty creature that rules. Uh, there's probably a lot of reasons why Aslan is a lion, but you're going to learn to love Aslan. There was actually one letter, I think I mentioned too, there was one letter that uh, one mother wrote to C.S. Lewis concerned that her little boy loved Aslan more than he loved Jesus. And C.S. Lewis told her to chill out a little bit. He will make the adjustment later when he kind of, you know, loving Aslan as a little boy might help him love Jesus as he gets older. Um, but you'll learn to love Aslan. So look, look at the section where it starts. They say Aslan is on the move. I want us to look at this. This is the first mention of Aslan. If you read the books in the right order. And if you notice here, it's obvious this is the first mention of Aslan. This should be the first mention of Aslan you encounter. That's why if you do the new numbering that HarperCollins has done that puts the magician's nephew first, it just messes up so many things. Don't read magician's nephew first. Read it in the order they were written and published. Anyway, so this is your first encounter with Aslan. Look at the text. 
They say Aslan is on the move. This is Mr. Beaver talking. Um, they say Aslan is on the move, perhaps has already landed. Now, of course, you notice the battle imagery there. C.S. Lewis is very famous for saying in multiple places, probably most famously in mere Christianity, that part of what's going on in the church age is Jesus, and Jesus is using us to take back occupied territory in this world. Jesus was an invasion of the kingdom of God into this world. Genesis 1 and 2, creation is good. It's declared good. But then Genesis 3 happens. The serpent enters the story. Humanity rebels. The planet rebels. Humanity becomes fallen. Um, uh, the planet is fallen. That's why there's tornadoes and hurricanes and such. Um, so um, when Jesus, when the devil offered Jesus in the temptations, you know, Jesus worship me and I'll give you the kingdoms of this world. The kingdoms of this world are the devils to offer Jesus. Uh, that's just not the way Jesus was going to get them back. Uh, this is a fallen world, both humanly and creation-wise. It's a fallen world. So in Jesus, that's, um, that's God beginning the work of taking back what is rightfully God's. Just like Aslan is the rightful ruler in Narnia, not the white witch. So uh, the way, one of the major ways C.S. Lewis paints a picture of what we're all about is Jesus was invasion of the kingdom of God in this world, and we are part of that um, effort. We're 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 heading. We're, we're doing. We're we're we are. D days happened with Jesus, and we're all making our way to Berlin, to use World War II imagery. Uh, and that's the way that's the way Christian theology pictures this world and pictures this age. Uh, if you don't know that you're in a spiritual battle and you're busy taking back occupied territory, you, you need to get with the program. Um, that, that's kind of the basic Christian theology. Uh, if you notice the very first thing Jesus says in the Gospel of Mark, the oldest gospel, the very first thing Jesus says is not, you know, believe in me and you get to go to heaven. The very first thing Jesus says, Look at your red letters in the Gospel of Mark. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, or the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the Gospel. So, yeah, he's coming to bring the kingdom of God. Uh, he, he was the, the, the advanced troops, and now we're part of those troops. So um, they say Aslan is on the move. Perhaps Aslan has already landed. And now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. Because you haven't read Magician's Nephew yet, have you? This is where you, and this, you'll see why. This is where you're in, you are introduced to Aslan. Um, but the moment the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt differently. Perhaps it has something. Perhaps it has something happened to you in a dream that someone says something which you don't understand, but in the dream it feels as if it had some enormous meaning either a terrifying one which turns the whole dream into a nightmare or else a lovely meaning, too lovely to put into words, which makes the dream so beautiful that you remember it all your life and are always wishing you could get into the dream again. It was like that now, and I love this next passage. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump in its inside. See, if you read Magician's Nephew first, this whole thing loses some of its impact. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump inside. Notice the difference between Edmund and the rest of the children. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize it's the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. So uh, we know why Edmund's feeling is not wonderful when he hears Aslan's on the move. Because Edmund has just been horrible. And he's going to get more horrible, by the way, before he gets better. He is going to get better. But um, so that's why when they all hear the name Aslan mentioned, they all feel something pretty tremendous. 
Um, but Edmonds is rather negative. Peter, Susan, and Lucy has a rather positive, amazing, good feeling. So um, that's how they introduced to Aslan, who is on the move. He has come back to Narnia, um, which that's going to be bad, bad, bad news for the White Witch. So um, anyway, they start following the beaver. And they really are glad to follow the beaver when the beaver says, let's go somewhere we can talk and have dinner because they're hungry. They start following the beaver. Um, and, of course, beavers build dams. Uh, so they, they kind of walk by the dam. And notice when they walk by the dam, they see the river. And the way that the river is described, and below the dam, much lower down, was more ice. But instead of being smooth, this river was all frozen into a foamy and wavy shapes in which the water had been rushing along at the very moment when the frost came. It was as if when the bad magic of the witch took over, it was instantaneous. I mean, the river just froze in the waves that it, it was making. So that's the way the river looks. They're making their way into the, um, the beaver's house. Now, you also notice that as they make their way into the beaver's house, um, Edmund is noticing something else. He's looking toward those hills to see where the white witch's house is. Because the only thing he can remember is the Turkish delight. He remembers the Turkish delight. He's been taken over by his cravings for the Turkish delight and by... Um, the fact that he will, the queen says, the, the false queen of Narnia, the wicked witch, the white witch, Jadis, she says that she's going to make him king and make his siblings serve under him. So all of that's just entranced, enchanted Edmund. So they're going to the beaver's house. He's noticing something else. He's looking for um, the, the, the way to the, to the witch's house. Horrible ideas are coming to his head. So they make their way into the witch's house. Look at uh, the sketching by Pauline Baines of the four children walking into the witch's house. Not the witch's house, sorry. The beaver's house. Um, notice a couple of things. You notice how big the coats are on them. We talked about that last week when we saw the coats and how that maybe symbolizes baptism. Um, they are also... Now, things have changed in this realm. But in C.S. Lewis's day, perhaps them wearing fur coats helped them to identify with the animals. Not quite that way today. You might get in trouble wearing fur coats today. But uh, in C.S. Lewis's day, it was not such. And people have even postulated that these coats, because the professor wasn't rich, even though he had a huge house, uh, the, these were not mink or ermine coats. They're probably, guess what, beaver fur that they're wearing. So they're identifying with a beaver. I don't think people in our world would quite write the story this way, but uh, this was written in the 50s. So and you also notice they're going into uh, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver's house. Um, looks very, very small here. Uh, when you see the other picture from the inside, it looks pretty large on the inside. But anyways, they go in, they hear something running, or, uh, or a, uh, well, he, he refers to it as a burring sound. And uh, what does they find Mrs. Beaver doing? She's sewing. Um, we do know that C.S. Lewis w was very, very gentle with Pauline Baines and was very complimentary of Pauline Baines, the person who made all these uh, sketches for him. They're still in the books. Um, but she messed up some. Um, he did make her learn to do for obvious reasons, he didn't make her learn. He made her work on her drawing of lines. Um, some things he didn't correct, which I, I think he probably knew, such as, look at Mrs. Beaver sitting on her um, sewing machine. Um, there's a problem with that picture. There's no electricity in Narnia. So her foot needs to be on a pedal. Uh, making that sewing machine work. You know, I, I can just, because I think I know Jack Lewis well enough now, I can just sense how he probably felt when he saw that. But he didn't want to hurt Pauline's feelings. So 
so it's a quaint picture. But yeah, there's no, um, best we can tell, you may can find evidence otherwise, there's no electricity in Narnia. Because this goes back more to, like, C.S. Lewis's childhood. And you see pictures from from inside homes in Narnia. Anyway, little problem with the picture. But there she, But it's a, it's a very homey scene. You know, he walks in, you're going to see the inside of the beaver's house. She's sitting there sewing. Yeah, you're going to fall in love with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And then um, he, she, 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 she feeds them before she wants to talk about what has happened to Mr. Tumnus. They want to know what's happened to Mr. Tumnus, the phone. Uh, you notice how it's described. And again, sort of like with the Turkish Delight, you, you get a picture as to what um, C.S. Lewis and his generation loved by seeing what they eat, seeing how they lived. Um, there's this interesting looking at the beaver's home. Uh, like, for instance, when they sat down, um, there was a jug of creamy milk for the children. Mr. This is England, he's Anglican. Mr. Beaver stuck to beer. And a great big lump of deep yellow butter. They still were living with a degree of rationing in England following World War II when he wrote this. Um, they were further behind than we were with rationing in World War II and right after World War II. And we have, um, it causes letters, some of his American fans would send him things he could not even get in England, like a ham. You know, they, would, uh, they were behind us. So um, some of this, you know, all the Turkish delight you want, all the butter you want is coming from World War II era when things were rationed. But, um, yeah, you probably don't get excited by a whole bunch of butter on your table. But if you've gone through rationing and all of a sudden you can have all the butter you want for your bread, that's exciting. Uh, anyway, a great big lump of yellow butter in the middle of the table from which everyone took as much as he wanted to go with his potatoes. And all the children thought, and I love this, and I agree with them. C.S. Lewis just sticks himself in the book. All the children thought, and I agree with them, that there's nothing to beat good freshwater fish if you eat it when it had been alive half an hour ago. Um, nobody asked C.S. Lewis, does not, you know, here's animals eating animals. Is, is that not an issue? Um, but not, that's the way the world functions. Um, he was not a veg. C.S. Lewis was not a vegetarian. It's the way the world functions. Anyway, so they have the meal. You see the picture there of the house in which they live. It's really, and you see it looks much bigger on the inside than it did on the outside. You see it, it looks very homey. Now, I think C.S. Lewis would want you to compare that home with what you saw with Mr. Tumnus's house, because there's a difference. Um, um, I'll show you the difference in a moment, but there's, there's a difference. But before you get to that, finish the chapter. Look at the very last part of chapter uh, 7. You're going to see again C.S. Lewis's providential use of weather. It's snowing again, uh, he added, uh, cocking his eye at the window. That's all the better because it means we shan't have any visitors and if anyone should have been trying to follow you, why he won't find any tracks. So, uh, yeah, that, that the snow is helping keep them safe. Uh, the snow is helping them have some privacy here with the beavers. Uh, because Narnia has fallen, the, wick, the wicked white witch has uh, spies everywhere. And even if they're trying to track them, they can't track them in the snow because it's evidently heavy snow falling. We've already looked at several instances where weather seems to be used by C.S. Lewis providentially to, to get the children where he wants them to be, uh, to help the children. So, um, yeah, you never know how God's intervening in your life. So, anyway, so dinner's happened. So they finally say, chapter 8, please tell us what's happening to Mr. Tumnus. Remember last week we saw that he had been arrested. He had been arrested by the, the, the White Witch's secret police. So um, um, they begin to talk about um, what's happened. Uh, just another piece of trivia. Um, I remember when I was teaching at the university and I was teaching undergraduates New Testament, I, I was, I'd done that probably about four semesters when I realized that one of my primary tasks 
was teach those undergraduates how to read. <laughs> how to read what's in front of them and not what they think is in front of them. How they read what the text says and not what their grandmother told them. How to read, anyway, yeah, read the text. And that's harder and harder for moderns because we don't, we're used to getting our information quickly um, in sound bites and sometimes don't pay attention to the text that's in front of us. So sometimes I'll point out trivia. I'm just trying to help you read the text closely. You, you notice um, at the very beginning of chapter 8 when they begin talking about where Mr. Tumnus is, uh, Mr. Beaver says, I'm afraid it means they were taking him to her house. Now, you see the word house capitalized there. Nowhere else. Now, there may be a couple reasons for that. One, it may be significant, but I'm not sure why. None of us know why he all of a sudden capitalized, because this is the witch's house. Now, I can understand if he would have capitalized Aslan's house or the emperor beyond the sea's house. Um, probably the reason it's capitalized, and I'm telling you this to help you get to know Jack a little better, his whole life with all of his writing, and he wrote an unbelievable amount of books while he was teaching and taking care of Mrs. Moore. He wrote an unbelievable number of books. And I already told you about how he corresponded with people. He always, always, always refused to use a typewriter. He said the clacking distracted him. He always wrote with an old-fashioned pen. I can't imagine. He always wrote with an old-fashioned pen. So probably the manuscript that he wrote, he just capitalized the word house here, and the um, publishers didn't know what to do with it. Because, again, he, he was not using a typewriter. If he had been using a typewriter, he couldn't backspace. Remember these days? He couldn't backspace and use the whiteout. And it's not a computer that he can delete. So when the manuscript went to the publisher, it's probably just capitalized for no real good reason. And it's still in the text. Anyway, that's your trivia for today. Um, but anyway, so Mr. Beaver says, I'm sure they've taken Mr. Tumnus to the witch's house. Uh, there he, he turns people into stone. She turns people into stone. So Mr. Tumnus has probably been turned into stone. One of the basic theological convictions of Mr. Lewis is the more you become Christ-like, the more human you become in the ideal sense, in the way you were meant to be human, in the way you were meant to be created by God. We, that's why in heaven we become who we were created to be. And we should be on a journey becoming more like who we were created to be, not the fallen humanity that we inherited in this world. So uh, C.S. Lewis is very adamant that, um, you know, the, the process of redemption, sanctification, growth in grace, becoming Christ-like, is we're becoming more and more like the humans God's created us to be. So if you head the other direction, what is it that happens to you? You become less and less and less human. Statues. You kind of look human, but you not only have a heart of stone, you just all completely stone. Um, one of my favorite phrases in the screw tape letters, when the when screw tape and um, wormwood are talking about a contentious old complaining lady who thinks she's just wants everything. If you ask the old lady, she just wants everything done correctly. She wants everything done right, but she's driving everybody in her life crazy. And uh, screw tape says you can tell that because everybody in her life has this hunted look on their face, <laughs> like that person's after them. But anyway, uh, what you also hear there is that that person is is not just a grumbler. She has ceased being a grumbler and has just turned into a grumble. The further away we get from God. The further away we get from Christ, the less human we are. Yeah, there's some people who are not just grumblers or complainers. They're just a big complaint. That's all they've become. So um, uh, that's just basic Christian, Christian theology. Uh, C.S. Lewis affirmed his whole life he's an Orthodox Christian. That's basic Christian theology. The more you become like Christ, the more you become the human 
that you were created to be. The less you're like Christ, you may end up like a person of stone with a stone heart. You may not even be a human. You may just be a grumble. You may just be a complaint. You just cease being human. So anyway, this is, is not surprising. This white witch, when she what she does to people, she turns them into stone. By the way, I hate spoiling it for you, but there's going to come a point in this story. Aslan's going to go to the white witch's house. She is going, he is going to breathe on the stone creatures, and guess what? They come back to life. John chapter 20, if you don't recognize it. Anyway, but yeah, um, she, she takes away your humanity. God gives you your humanity. The devil takes away your humanity. God gives you your humanity. Anyway, so uh, back to very, very, um, well, one thing at the top of page 78, it's Lucy who says, but Mr. Beaver, can't we, I mean, we must do something to save him. Lucy is ready to attack hell with a water pistol. <laughs> to get Mr. Tumnus back. So I tell you that because later when she's enthroned at Care Paravel, she's going to be enthroned as Lucy the Valiant. She's the brave one here. We like Lucy. We like Lucy. So anyway, uh, Mr. Beaver's going to say, calm down, children. You can't do it by yourself. You need who to help you? Aslan. Um, so when, when he says that, I'm about heading toward the bottom of page 78, the sentence says, Oh, yes, tell us about Aslan, said several voices at once. Would not be Edmund's voice. Uh, said, he said several, says three of the children. Oh, yes, tell us about Aslan, said several voices at once. For once again, that strange feeling, like the first sign of spring, like good news had come over them. Who is Aslan? Answered, asked Susan. Aslan, said Mr. Beaver. Why, don't you know? He's the king. He is the lord of the whole wood. But not often here, because we are occupied territory. Sometimes in this world we experience him, we fellowship with him, but it's not constant yet. One day it'll be constant. We call that heaven or the coming of the kingdom. But um, he's the king. He's lord of the whole world, but not often here, you understand. Never in my time or my father's time, but the word has reached us that he has come back. He is in Narnia at this moment. He'll settle the white queen all right. It is he, not you, that will save Mr. Tumnus. Uh, he's preparing children to learn about Jesus. She won't turn him into stone too, said Edmund. This is the last thing Edmund says. And then Edmund's going to vanish from the room, leave. Lord love you, son of Adam. What a simple thing, stupid thing to say, <laughs> answered Mr. Beaver with a great laugh. Turn him into stone? If she can stand on her two feet and look him in the face, it'll be the most she can do and more than I expect of her. No, no, he'll put all to rights. That's the way they say it in England. He'll put all to rights. He'll make everything right. He'll put all to rights, as it says in an old rhyme in these parts. I've still got a person in my C.S. Lewis side to the triad who is now 17, and she's been a member of the society since she was like nine. And I'll never forget the night she showed up. She quoted this prophecy from memory. And all of us adults were impressed. Um, um, he says, Mr. Beaver, he'll put all to rights, as it says in an old rhyme in these parts. And this is what this nine, ten-year-old quoted from memory. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bares his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, he shall have spring again. Um, that's, that's the second prophecy that you're hearing about. First prophecy, the four humans on the throne. Here's the second prophecy, how Aslan was going to show up and make everything right. And then Mr. Beaver says, you'll understand when you see him. But shall we see him? Asked Susan. Why, daughter of Eve, that's what I 
That's what I brought you here for. I'm to lead you where you shall meet him, said Mr. Beaver. Is is he a man? Um, Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. See, at this, up to this point, you don't know he's a lion yet. Is he a man? Aslan a man? Because, again, you haven't read Magician's Nephew. Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beast? Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. And here comes maybe one of my favorite passages. And this is a passage I could preach on for months. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie. And no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. If you haven't learned that about Jesus, we got a lot of work to do. You know, uh, I'm fond of saying Jesus will never hurt you, but Jesus will never harm you, but Jesus will hurt you. Uh, sometimes it feels like he's got his pruning shears out. Sometimes he feels like the potter and you don't want to be molded. Sometimes the closer you get to Jesus, the more problems are created for your life. We, we know that from the Bible in 2,000 years history. C.S. Lewis one time said, and again, I apologize for the teetotalers in the room. C.S. Lewis was English in Church of England. He said, if you just want comfort, a good bottle of port will take care of that. <laughs> now, if you want challenge, if you want to be pushed out of your comfort zone, if you want to be made to do things you don't want to do, if you want to be made to fight your nature, if you want to be made to go against the way you were born, if you want to be made to go against your inclinations, yeah, get close to Jesus. That's, uh, I think I've mentioned to you, he calls it in the great, he calls it in uh, mere Christianity, the intolerable compliment. Jesus will not let, Jesus will not stop bugging you till he's made you into his image. So I hope that when you do something that's not pleasing Jesus Christ, he just drives you crazy. Till you let it go. So he's not safe, but he's good. So it's, it's like a surgeon who's working on us. Yeah, it hurts, but he's not harming us. He's saving us. It's like a dentist. He's, he's, he's hurting me, but he's not harming me. So yeah, if you, have, if you just have turned Jesus into a bottle of Tylenol that you can take off the shelf and you need a little comfort and pain relief... You need to grow in your relationship to Jesus. He expects a little more out of your life. He, he, he wants to push you somewhere you may not want to go. Um, I, I've been saying recently, because it one of my favorite stories, it comes from a great South African Christian, but uh, that great South African Christian one time said, when you stand before Jesus one day in the judgment, one of the things he asks you may be, where are your scars? Where are your wounds? Was there nothing worth fighting for? Yeah, he's not safe, but he's good. If you've just turned him into a warm blanket or a bottle of Tylenol or the old man upstairs or sort of a biblical version of Santa Claus, you need to think about the lion nature of Jesus a little bit. If you've never felt, and you see this in Chronicles of Narnia, if you've never felt Aslan growl at you a little bit, it's a growl of love, but he will growl at you. Now, American Christians, and this, by the way, if, if you haven't recognized it, I'm sort of pointing you away from the prosperity gospel, which is not the biblical gospel. The, the Jesus of the prosperity movement is not the Jesus of the Bible. 
Um, that's why I like to say Joel Osteen's not wrong in what he says. He's just leaving about he's just leaving out about two thirds of the faith. Um, you know, Jesus is not just trying to give you your best life now. He might be preparing you for your best life future by making you a little miserable right now. Um, the church has always known that. So again, C.S. Lewis is preparing children to have a biblical view of Jesus. You know, I mean, we Americans trifle with God. We trifle with God way too much. I met with a group of really, really, really sharp young adults recently and asked them what, what they needed out of worship they weren't getting. And they, you know what they told me, both of them? Reverence, a sense of awe, a sense of transcendence. And they, these people can, and I love both contemporary and traditional worship. These two young people attend contemporary. They, 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 they love it, but they said, you know, they also need a sense that God is holy. Get your way to Jesus. But yeah, of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. An amazing, amazing passage. And you're going to, this, in almost the rest of the Chronicles, and by the way, I've got a devotional on my shelves called A Year with a Year with Aslan, where every day there's a little reading from a Chronicle of Narnia that points you back to Aslan, where, where you learn a lot more about Aslan, but really almost everything else that C.S. Lewis writes about Aslan, points people toward Aslan, has to do with who Aslan is. So anyway, um, yeah, great text, great text. Anyway, um, you learn some more about the White Witch. They realize Edmund is gone, so they want to go find Edmund. Now, now they got Edmund and Tumnus to look for. They want to go find him, but they, they, um, the beavers help them understand they can't just go running off after Edmund because Edmund, they know where Edmund is. They saw it in his eyes. He had been seduced by the white witch. They know he's gone to the white witch. They know he's busy betraying them. And then, um, yeah, they know he's busy betraying them. So uh, they know that they don't need to head toward the white witch. They need to head toward Aslan because they need Aslan, not, not going to rescue uh, Edmund on his own or rescue Tumnus on his own. Um, anyway, so they start heading toward the stone table. And they know they know that uh, they figured out they got about 20 minutes to hit hit the road, because that's how long it'll take um, Edmund to get to the White Witch, and for the White Witch with her entourage to come back to the the home of the Beavers. So they they start heading toward the White Table. Okay, let me show you one quick Bible text, and we'll wrap up. Um, I've made several allusions, but in case you're not familiar to it, go to the book of Revelation, chapter five. Um, as homework, you can look at Genesis chapter 49. In Genesis chapter 49, when Jacob blesses his sons, he blesses Judah. And that's where the line imagery comes from. And even to this day, among Jews, the line is still the image for the tribe of Judah. That comes from chapter 49, um, which is why that's the Jewish background of what we find in Revelation chapter 5. In Revelation chapter 5, in chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation, you find yourself in heaven. You find yourself in heaven, and John sees a big book, um, big scroll that is sealed. That book may be the book of life. That book may be the book that releases the plan of history or something like that. And they're weeping because no one is powerful enough to open the book. Well, if you know the Chronicles of Narnia, you know who's powerful enough to open the book. So look at chapter 5, begin at verse 1. We're in heaven. John's in heaven. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with the seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Well, if you've read Chronicles Narnia, you know who's worthy and who has the power and the right. Anyway, verse 3, And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep, John says loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders there in heaven said to me, Weep no more. 
Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And then the book of Revelation continues to tell what all that means. But you, you know who's the one has the power and the right and the authority to open. So, yeah, if you just have a vision of Jesus meek and mild, if you just have Jesus as your friend, and I hope he's your friend, you need to flesh that vision out a little bit uh, so that you'll have a vision of Jesus Christ that, that, that meshes with the Bible. Yeah, I, we, we trifle too easily with Jesus in this culture, way too easily. That's why I, I can't bring myself to take the Lord's name in vain. We trifle with Jesus Christ way too easily in this world. You know, if, if more people were brought up on the Chronicles of Narnia and would let Jesus be a little more Aslan-like, they would learn not to trifle with him. They would learn to obey him. They would learn to um, let him run their lives and not themselves. So next week we will continue our journey in Narnia. You notice next week is chapters 9, 10, and 11. Yeah, chapters 7 and 8 are two of the most pivotal chapters in the book. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for this group of people that um, want to learn more about you, want to learn more about their faith, want to be more faithful in being a Christ follower. God, we pray that we'll know more about what it means to be a Christ follower. We'll, we'll make more of an offering of our lives to you than we ever have before. We pray, God, that we will seek your will, your wishes, your agenda for our living. May your desire for our life mean more to us than our pleasure or our comfort. Help us to live as Christ followers in this world so that we can be bearers of your gospel in this world and, to, and then live for eternity enjoying your presence. God, we thank you for this time together. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Okay, go forth. Great seeing all of you.